This morning, as we begin, I'm going to read verses 5 through 16, Romans 2, 5 through 16. And according to your hardness and impenitent heart, you are accumulating for yourself wrath in a day of wrath and revelation of God's righteous judgment, who will give back to everyone according to his works. On one hand, to those who by perseverance in good work seek glory, honor, and immortality, everlasting life. On the other hand, to those who from selfishness are both disobeying the truth and being persuaded by injustice will be wrath and anger affliction and distress on every soul of man that does evil of a Jew first and also of a Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to a Jew first and also to a Greek, for with God is no favoritism. Actually, I'm not going to read all the way down to 16. I'm going to stop there before we pray. For with God is no favoritism. And then in verses 12 to 16, he's going to enlarge upon that. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on the ministry of his holy and infallible word. Father, as we come to consider the reality of the day of judgment, where we will all be someday, we pray that the Holy Spirit will shine light upon what your word says about it. The judgment of Gentile and Jew without respect of persons, no ethnic privilege of any kind, but everybody equal before you, leveled. We pray that the Holy Spirit will come upon us. Grant that we will so live that on that great day we will hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And we pray, Father, that if there's anyone listening to the sound of my voice this morning, that they wouldn't just hear me, but as we sung, that they would hear Jesus Christ. And they would turn away from their sins and get right with you while there's still time. We ask it in his name. Amen. Now last time, as we looked at the features of Judgment Day, part one, we saw that Judgment Day will divide men. will divide humanity into two classes, what Jesus called the sheep and the goats. The goats, the wicked, the sheep, the righteous. And Judgment Day will divide people into the righteous and the wicked. And every one of us is going to be in one of those classes, categories, and there are no other categories on the last day. And we're all going to stand before God on that day, either with the sheep or with the goats, either with the righteous or with the wicked. 
because judgment day will divide men. But then there's a second thing that the Apostle Paul says. That very same judgment day, which will divide men ethically or morally into two camps, righteous and wicked, will also level or equalize people. Ethnically. In terms of privilege. Now we hear so much today about privilege. Don't we hear about privilege today? You think of yourself as privileged? Well, there's privilege as the world defines privilege. But there's also privilege as God defines privilege. And on the judgment day, ethnically, God's judgment will level people. And I don't want to say that this text describes the privileged and the underprivileged. But let's just say it describes those that are more privileged and those that are less privileged. Those that have greater privileges and those that have privileges that aren't so great. And the privilege that this text is talking about is not the kind of privilege that the world is preaching today. But the privilege that this text is talking is religious privilege. Notice how it describes it. It says in verse 11, the key, there is no respect of persons with God. It doesn't matter how privileged you are on that great day. It's not a matter of privilege or upbringing or whether you're a Jew, or whether you're a Gentile. Because heaven and hell will be integrated ethnically. And it doesn't matter whether you can trace your upbringing to, or rather your ancestry, back to Abraham or to the king of England. It doesn't profit or benefit anyone on the day of judgment to have any kind of earthly privileges because he is an impartial judge and there is no respect of persons with God. That's the principle that he articulates in verse 11. There is no respect of persons with God. And then he describes in verses 12 to 15 the practical, specific outworking of this principle that with God on Judgment Day there will be no favoritism for those that have great religious privilege or those that have little religious privilege. They're all going to be judged. And that judgment is going to level those with great privileges, those with less privileges, in terms of religion. There's going to be an ethnic and privileged leveling, equalizing of humanity on that day. Now, there's a special name in Greek for the structure of this passage. And I'm, I, I like using a PowerPoint because I can paint a picture. But 
Can you see this? I'm drawing in the air an X. You see that? Right. It's, and there is a Greek letter that looks like an X, right? And so it goes like this. This, what comes first, is connected to this, what comes last. And this, what comes second, is connected to this, what comes third. So you have four things in these texts. It goes like this. One, two, three, and then four. And that, that type of structure is named after the Greek letter key. It's called a chiastic structure. Aren't you happy you learned that? Oh, you're so happy to learn that, aren't you? So another way to put it is this. If it starts with A, then it goes to B, and then it goes to B, and then it goes back to A. Or how about this? It starts with gen Gentile or Greek, then it goes to Jew, then it goes to Jew, then it goes back to Greek. So it goes Greek, Jew, Jew, Greek. Now, let me explain then what we're talking about. Now I'm going to read these verses. Well, look at verse 12. It starts with Greek, the less privileged. For as many as have sinned without the law, less privileged, will also perish without the law. A. And as many as have sinned within the law will be judged by the law. Jew. B. Now the explanation of B. For not the hearers of the law are right with God. Rather, the doers of the law will be justified. Jew. A. I'm sorry. Jew. B. And then back to A. Now an explanation. For whenever nations, Gentiles, the word is ethnos, that don't have the law, do by nature the things of the law. These, although they don't have the law, are the law for themselves, who display the law's work written in their heart, their conscience, etc. You see how that, which starts in verse 14, is an explanation? As many as have sinned without the law, for whenever nations that don't have the law, see the, that what comes in verse 14 is an explanation of the first part of verse 12, and what comes in verse 13 is an explanation of the second part of verse 12. That's your X or chiastic structure. Some of you looking a little confused. Are you following this? Right, so it starts in the verse part of verse 12, talking about the Gentiles or the Greeks. And then it explains how he's going to judge those that are without the law in verse 14 and 15. In the second part of verse 12, it talks about the privileged ones that have the special privileges of the Jews. And it describes how God's going to judge them in verse 13. So it goes, Greek, Jew, Jew, Greek. Capiche? All right. So I'm going to start where it starts. And that is ultimate justice for less privileged sinners and then ultimate justice 
for more privileged sinners. You have the less privileged sinners, the Gentiles or the Greeks, and the more privileged sinners, the Jews. And what will ultimate justice look like for the less privileged and then for the more privileged? That's what's in the text. Okay? All right, now, ultimate justice for the less privileged. What is going to be the way that God holds the less privileged ones accountable? The answer is the human conscience. And how's he going to hold the more privileged ones accountable? The answer is the Decalogue. The Decalogue and conscience. Notice how he puts it. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law because when the Gentiles or the nations that don't have the law do by nature the things of the law, these not having the law are the law for themselves. So how can that be? In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness with it. Now what is the law's work? It says they are the law. Well, what work does the law do? Well, the law defines morality, and the law obliges morality, and the law judges moral conduct. It either condones or condemns. And this is exactly what they themselves do. They define right and wrong. They oblige right and condemn wrong. And they judge themselves whether they did right or they did wrong. They are the law because they do the work that the law does. And what is the faculty of the human heart by which the human heart defines right and wrong, obliges right and forbids wrong, condones right and condemns wrong? There's a name for that. And the name for that faculty is the human conscience. Now what does the Bible say about the human conscience? And what it says is that on the judgment day, God is going to judge less privileged sinners using their own consciences. That's what it says. They never, maybe these Gentiles never even heard of the Decalogue. But they have a conscience. And God's going to judge them that were less privileged and never had the privilege of hearing the Ten Commandments. He's going to judge them by their own consciences is what he's going to use to judge them. They are the law. They do the work that the law does. They define right and wrong. They oblige to do right and forbid to do wrong. They condone what's right and condemn what's wrong. They do that. And the faculty of their hearts by which they do that is called their conscience. 
Now, what does the Bible say about the human conscience? Well, it says that everybody has a conscience. Now, I could go back and do a study of biblical theology today and trace the history of this, but let me give you a couple of examples from the book of Genesis. Lot, in Genesis 19.7, says to the people of Sodom, my brothers, don't do so wickedly. Well, wasn't this, didn't this happen before the giving of the Decalogue? How did they know that there was any such thing as wickedness before God ever spoke his law from Mount Sinai? How did they know that? Where did they get that idea that it was wicked to do the things they were doing? Who told them it was wicked? How did they know it was wicked? Because they had a conscience. They always did have a conscience. They had a conscience before God ever said anything on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. And how about the case of Joseph in Genesis 39.9 when Potiphar's wife comes to him and basically throws herself at him. What does he say to her? He says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Well, how did he know that adultery was sin? How did he know it was sin against God? Who told him that? Where did he get the idea that it was sin against God? He never heard the Ten Commandments coming from God on Mount Sinai. He never read a Bible. There was no Bible when Jesus lived. The Bible didn't start to be written until Moses came centuries later. And he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Adultery is sin. Adultery is wrong. It's sin against God. Well, how do you know that? Where'd you get the idea of sin against God? The human conscience. He had a conscience. And his conscience told him that adultery was wrong. He knew it was wrong. He knew it was morally wrong and sin against God. But how did he know before the giving of the law? Because of the human conscience. Before the law, sin was in the world. And sin isn't reckoned if there's no code. But what was the code? What was the moral code of God by which sin was reckoned before he ever spoke any moral code off Mount Sinai? And the answer is the human conscience. The Bible's clear about it. Everybody has a conscience. But the thing is this. So, let me tell you. College professors have a conscience. College professors? Yeah, college professors have a conscience. Conscience. They have a conscience. Political candidates have a conscience. We say, well, how can people that have a conscience do unconscionable things? We'll get to it. Conscience has been defiled by sin. Titus 1.15, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and their conscience are defiled. 
They still define right and wrong. They still oblige you to do right and forbid you to do wrong. They still condone doing right and condemn doing wrong, but their conscience is defiled. And Isaiah describes them in Isaiah 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Their conscience is so defiled that they don't define moral good correctly. What they call good is evil. What they call evil is good. Conscience still works, but it doesn't work right. It's all twisted around and perverted and defiled by sin. So their ideas of what morally right are actually morally wrong. And their ideas of what morally wrong is actually morally right. And their conscience is twisted. So they condone wickedness and they condemn integrity. They're twisted around. They still do it. They still define right and wrong. They still oblige doing right and condemn doing wrong. Oh yes. That's what conscience does. But the conscience of sinners doesn't do it right. Conscience of sinners is defiled. They call evil good and good evil. They condemn righteousness and condone wickedness. Yeah, they're going around condemning. They're going around condoning. But what they're condoning is not good. It's evil. And what they're condemning is not evil. It's good. What does that mean? It means their conscience is defiled. And it's worse than that. Sometimes the conscience is seared with a hot iron. 1 Timothy 4. Those that speak lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. What does that mean? It means it can't feel the way it used to feel. Used to be. They told a lie, speaking lies. Their conscience said, that's wrong. You're supposed to tell the truth. But they didn't want to hear that. So it's like conscience is speaking to them. But they took out the remote and they turned down the volume. And they wished that they had a mute button. So they could turn conscience off altogether. And the goal is to be able to sin and conscience not be able to be heard because it's seared with a hot iron. Used to be if they told a lie that their conscience would bother them and they'd feel guilty. But they didn't like that. So they said to conscience, shut up. They gagged. They turn down the volume to get to the point where they can do the things that once conscience would bother them for and they don't want it to bother them. And so they seared it. They burned it. They gagged it. They made it so they could sin and not feel the pain and twinge of conscience when they sin. So not only is conscience defiled, they twisted it so that it said this is okay when it's really morally wrong. But they also muted it and gagged it and seared it so that it wouldn't smite them the way it used to do. 
But on the day of judgment, all that kind of nonsense is not going to work. God's going to unmute it and unsear it and straighten it out so it's not telling lies anymore. And then they're going to be convicted of the things they've done by their own consciences on the day of judgment. Not going to get away with it. God's going to use the conscience that they have defiled and seared some of them. He's going to undefile and unsear it so that it speaks to them exactly right of what they have done. That's what's going to happen to the less privileged on the day of judgment. And there's a connection between conscience and the Ten Commandments. Because what happened actually on Mount Sinai? What happened on Mount Sinai is God thundered the voice of conscience turned up the volume and he amplified it and he clarified or codified it and he purified it. Do you want to know what conscience is saying to people? Undefiled, unmuted. It's saying exactly what God thundered on Mount Sinai. That's the voice of conscience amplified. It's like Instead of the mute button, it's like God's boombox. Mount Sinai, God's boombox. You ever sit next to a car in a stereo and a guy had a boombox? And the whole place was, was vibrating. Kaboom, 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 kaboom. And the whole place is shaking. Have you ever been you ever, you ever had that? Well, Mount Sinai, folks, is God's boombox. And the whole mountain's vibrating and shaking and the voice of God in his boombox is saying, you shall have no other gods before me. The boombox. That's the voice of conscience. That's the voice of conscience amplified, codified, purified, clarified, publicized. That's what conscience is saying when it's not defiled and seared and muted. What it's saying. That's the connection between the conscience and the Ten Commandments. And the only way to have a conscience cleansed is through the blood of Jesus. How much more will the blood of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 9.14, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What we need to do as human beings in the state of sin is instead of... uh, defiling our consciences and muting our consciences. We need to listen to them. We need to listen to what conscience is telling us. You want to know what conscience says? Read the Ten Commandments. That's what it's saying. It's saying you shall not murder. It's saying you shall not commit adultery. That's how Joseph knew it was wrong. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Honor your father and mother. 
This is what's right. That's what's morally right. That's what conscience is saying when it's not muted. Shut up, conscience. I don't want to hear you shall not bear false witness. I don't want to hear it. No, you don't want to hear it if you want to go around telling lies. You don't want to hear it. I know. But that's the point. The point is we've got to hear it. got to listen to it. got to listen to the voice of conscience. Listen to it honestly. Don't mute it. Don't turn the volume down. Don't sear it so it doesn't hurt you when you do the things that you know you shouldn't do. Listen to it. Well, I don't want to have to live with what it's saying. No, you don't have to live with a bad conscience. This is the whole point. How much more... Will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It is possible to have a good conscience. And how do you get a good conscience? You get a good conscience through the blood of Jesus. My dear friend, you don't want to wait to judgment day before you really start listening to the voice of your conscience. You don't want to wait till then. You want to listen to it now. And you want to have it cleansed now. It's going to be too late then. Too late then. But now's the time to listen to your conscience. Now's the time to have your conscience cleansed in the blood of Jesus. So how do you do that? Well, you admit openly, honestly, exactly what your conscience is telling you you're doing that's wrong. You don't lie about it anymore. You don't deny it anymore. You don't silence it anymore. You don't turn the volume down. But you listen to it. And then you go to God with it. I know that I'm a liar and I shouldn't be. I know that there's been hate in my heart. I shouldn't be. I know that. I know the things I've done. Dear God, I confess it to you. I'm not lying about it. I'm not denying it. I'm not turning it off. Please forgive me for my sin. Cleanse me in the blood of Jesus. How much more... Will the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Take your sins to God. Take your sins to Jesus. Ask him to wash you from your sin and to forgive you and to cleanse you from your sin in his precious blood. And his blood, that is, his atoning work, is able to give the conscience rest and peace. When you rely upon his suffering, his atonement, as the only, only satisfaction to God's justice for your sin, your conscience is cleansed. The guilt is removed. And you have peace in your heart. That's the way the human soul works. You can have peace. You don't have to live with a guilty conscience. Lying about it, denying it, turning the volume down. That's the wrong way. You're not, you know, the best you can do then is sear your conscience, which is a terrible thing, but that's the most you can accomplish that way, is searing your conscience so you can do things that used to make you feel guilty and not feel guilty anymore. Yeah, it's possible for human beings to sear their consciences, but that's not going to do you any good. It's just going to wind up ruining you. I, I honestly, I don't want that to happen. But then, you know, for us folks, that's just the less privileged. At least that much applies to us because everyone in this room has a conscience. But, but, but listen, 
We've got far more privilege than that. Look what it says. It says in verse 12 and 13, ultimate justice for more privileged sinners and as many as have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So it's not just your conscience, but the all the light you've received. I mean, you would have been judged by just your conscience even if you never heard anything else about God or the Bible. You have, you have a conscience and that would have been enough. But look at this. As many as have sinned under the law will be judged by the law because it's not the hearers of the law that are just, but the doers of the law will be justified. So you have accountability by privilege. Those that sinned under or within the law will be judged by the law. And then vindication, not by privilege, but by gospel obedience. The doers of the law will be justified. We are going to be judged and held accountable for what we know, for the light we have received, for the religious privileges that we have. That was true of the Jews under the Old Covenant and the privileges that they had 2,000 years ago. And how much more privilege do we have today? They didn't have the whole Bible. We do. They didn't have Christian nurture. We do. They didn't have the means of gospel grace, and we do. We got more privilege than those Jews had in the first century. They didn't have, they never read the New Testament. The people to whom Paul preached never read the New Testament. But we have. Some of us have been raised in Christian homes and Christian upbringing, have Bibles sitting in our houses somewhere, whole Bibles, complete Bibles, New Testament, Old Testament. We've got great light, we've got great privilege. And this is what Jesus said to people that heard the gospel. He said in Matthew eleven twenty three, and you Capernaum, the city of Capernaum, where he did a lot of miracles, you're exalted into heaven, you're going to be brought down to hell. Because if the mighty works that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it's going to be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. It's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment for, for the city of Sodom. It's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment for those, even those that had Old Testament life. And it's going to be for people that have had the privilege of gospel nurture, the whole Bible, the New Testament, the ministry of the word, the godly family, the people that have had all those privileges, it's going to be more tolerable for the underprivileged, for the less privileged, Sodom and Gomorrah, in the day of judgment than for them. Who said a thing like that? Jesus did. Those words came out of Jesus' mouth. He said it about Capernaum. And even those people in Capernaum that he said that about never read the New Testament. We have more special revelation in this book than they had. So what do you think? You think you're privileged 
You think you are? I, I'm telling you, you are. Jesus says you're very privileged people. Not in the way the world speaks about privilege. But the way Jesus speaks about privilege and God regards and reckons privileged, you are extremely privileged. You're more privileged than the Jews of the first century. You're more privileged than Capernaum. You've got the whole Bible. And some of you also Christian nurture. And on the day of judgment, we are going to be held accountable and we're going to be judged for that light and that privilege that God's given to us. You see the principle in the text? And what about the vindication? The doers of the law. Vindication is not based on privilege. Vindication on the day of judgment is not on what you hear and not on what you know, but it's on how you live. It's not whether you were put through some ritual, but what matters is how you live. And observe that he says the doers of the law will be justified or vindicated or declared righteous on that day. Evangelical gospel obedience to God's holy word from a regenerated heart that's pleasing to God, produced by the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith in Christ, out of love to God. It's not perfect, but genuine gospel obedience is what God is looking at when he judges people according to their works. So when he judges according to works on the last day, what he's going to look at is the life of the sheep and the life of the goats. And the life of the sheep is a life of gospel, evangelical obedience to his revealed will. And the case in court on that day is not going to be how does a sinner, an ungodly sinner, get accepted with God. But the case on court in that day is going to be, is this person's religion genuine? Is this person a righteous, saved person? Saved by grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone? And what's God going to look at to make that assessment? He's going to look at your life. Look at how you live. He's going to look at whether or not you live a life of gospel, spirit-wrought obedience to his revealed will from a regenerated heart. Sincere gospel obedience. The doers of the law, as he put it, will be vindicated, justified, declared to be genuinely converted people. But the case in court and that day is not going to be, how does a sinner get right with God? No, he that justifies the ungodly. No, the question in court on that day is going to be, is this person's religion genuine? And what God's going to look at to reach his verdict of vindication is the person's life. Now, the theologians have recognized for hundreds of years that the Bible speaks of two different brands or experiences or kinds of divine justification. There's even a name for it. And the name that I first found was 
uh, a man called Buchanan, who wrote, wrote the classic work on justification. And he calls the justification or vindication of the righteous on the last day by looking at their lifestyle, he calls that declarative justification. And he calls the justification of the ungodly that takes place at conversion on the ground of Christ alone, because of grace alone, by means of faith alone, actual justification. And there's no contradiction between the two because whenever God does a work of grace, whenever he forgives sin, he always does a transforming work in the heart and changes a person's way of life. And he always puts his spirit in people and causes them to walk in gospel obedience to his law. And on the day of judgment, he's going to declare that reality, that this person's religion is real and genuine and true, and he's going to use the person's life to evaluate whether his religion is real. The doers of the law will be vindicated. They will be declared to be truly righteous, converted people on the day of judgment. That's what this text is talking about. And actually, that's the same kind or aspect of divine vindication that James is talking about in James 2. And because what James is talking about in James chapter 2 is what happened to Abraham on Mount Moriah. And what God said about Abraham on Mount Moriah is this. He declared him to be truly righteous. He said, now I know, now I perceive that you fear God, that your religion is genuine because you have not withheld your only son from me. That was God's declaration that Abraham's religion was genuine. That declaration that took place on Mount Moriah, that's a picture of what's going to happen on Judgment Day. God's going to look back at the whole lifestyle that we've lived. He's going to make a declaration about us on that day, whether or not our religion is genuine. And that's going to be based on the light that we have. It's not the hearers, but the doers of the law that God will declare have genuine religion. He will vindicate them on that day. Does that make sense to you? We, got, don't, we can't confound those two things. And both aspects of divine vindication pertain to all that are genuinely saved. So what do we say by way of conclusion? Well, first of all, I mean, isn't it obvious that every one of us needs to get right with God? If we're not right with God, we need to get right with God. Why is that? Well, do you really want to wait until that day when you stand before God in judgment to finally listen to what your conscience is telling you? Do you really want to wait till then? I entreat you not to. Please don't. Because if you do, you'll really wish you didn't. I entreat you, this is the time to get right with God. Right now. And we need to live in the fear of God. If you call on him as father, who without respect of persons, judges according to each person's lifestyle, spend the time of your sojourning in fear, not doubting, knowing that you were redeemed 
with precious blood. Carefulness. Conscientiousness. To live in the fear of God ought to mark all of us that profess to have Him as our Father. Because on that day, we're going to be judged impartially according to our work. Those that have done good, that have lived a life of godliness to a resurrection of life, and those that have lived in hypocrisy and wickedness to a resurrection of damnation. And so that calls upon us to live right now in the fear of God. And what do I mean by the fear of God? I mean this. The awareness that God's eye is on us, even when nobody else is there but us. What we're doing in secret, what we're doing when no one else is around, knowing that God sees us, God hears us, and we're always living before him. Because on that day, the impartial judge is not going to judge us based on what we appeared to be or what we professed to be or what other people thought we were. But he's going to judge us based on what we really were and how we really lived when he was watching us because he sees the truth about us. So that, what does that call us to do? It calls us to live with transparency and the fear of God, knowing that God's eye is always on us, living accordingly. Well, may God be pleased to bless his holy word. Let's pray.